the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. EN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Simply the best versions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. You think that this took God by surprise? No, God had it all planned out. God knew that in this year, in this time period, there'd be a silly, dumb law like this. And there's no other way around it. It's a dumb law, ridiculous system like this. And God knew it would exist, and so he devised a solution. See, God can work in spite of human government, right? I mean, we, we struggle with our government and what they're doing and this and that. It's no problem for the Lord. The Lord can handle this system. He can handle any system. We are very blessed to live in a time and nation with a government that was formed of the people, by the people, and for the people. No matter what its flaws, our governmental system is still the best in history. But let's face it, we are still a nation of sinful people being governed by, well, sinful people. There's just no way around it. We are all part of the same fallen human race. So our government is still flawed and its leaders still fail us. We welcome you to today's broadcast of Verse by Verse, the radio teaching ministry of Steve Kreloff, pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our study in the book of Esther is beginning to draw to a close, but there are still several important issues that need to be resolved. For one thing, there is a law on the books that orders the execution of all the Jews throughout the entire Persian Empire, and nothing can reverse that law. Or, to put it another way, the chosen people of God are about to be completely wiped out, and not even the king can cancel his initial order. But as we have seen so many times throughout this series, God has everything under control. He will enact a plan to save his people. Let's join Pastor Steve to hear how this plan develops. Esther, chapter 8. Our study has been on Esther. It's been encouraging, helpful, practical, edifying. Recently, someone asked me if I thought that Esther ever became a saved person. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I don't believe that the picture in the Bible of her is one of a redeemed Jewish person, but I certainly hope that she saw her need for personal salvation and trusted the promises of God for the coming Messiah. Certainly, she knew about them, but whether she actually trusted the Lord for salvation, we are not told. But you see, it's, it's Esther's disinterest in spiritual things that really gives the book that's named after her an incredible message. I mean, that just adds to it that God is preserving and protecting his people, Israel, apart from any human cleverness or ingenuity or creativity or any human plan. I mean, to see the, the truth that Esther is not a believer or Mordecai is not a believer is to magnify the providence of God. 
the sovereignty of God. God is able to accomplish his plan without the cooperation of man. That's just amazing. God is able to accomplish his plan without others cooperating with him. He overrules things. He overrides man. And this isn't anything new. It's throughout the word of God that God uses saved and uses unsaved. But I guess when he uses the unsaved, it just magnifies his sovereignty. For instance, back in Isaiah, uh, God called Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king, he called him my servant because Nebuchadnezzar was going to march in and uh, and really ransack Jerusalem and accomplish God's plan of captivity, at least his response to the Jewish people's rebellion. Pontius Pilate and Herod accomplished the will of God without realizing it. They certainly were not obedient, but in the sense of God's sovereign plan, they were a part of it. Judas Iscariot is perhaps the greatest example of an unbeliever who, unbeknownst to him, was still a part of his plan. Now, we're not excusing their sin because because Jesus said, Woe be to that man! by whom this comes, but it was predicted that it would come. But woe be to that man, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. In the book of Esther, we have been observing how God is using unbelieving individuals to providentially preserve the chosen people, Israel. It started off by seeing the king, King Xerxes, who disposes of Vashti. Kind of at a whim, he disposes of his first wife, Vashti, And God is using that. It makes a way for another queen to ascend to the throne. And that's where beautiful Esther comes in. Esther, Hadassah, is chosen to be queen of Persia. Now she is in the position of prominence, that position that God wants for her so he can use her. And then there's Haman, wicked Haman. The Bible calls him the enemy of the Jews. How could God use him? Well, Haman devises a sinister plot to wipe out Israel. But because he's so superstitious, he has to throw the dice. He casts some lots to determine what day he'll put his plan into action. And in God's providential plan, the dice comes up one year in advance, enough time for Israel to be delivered. Enough time that Israel be delivered and God will be exalted as you and I study thousands of years later the book of Esther and see that God was in the dice. So without realizing it, everybody in this book is being used of God. Now we're going to look at another man who finally gets his chance to be used of God, and that's Mordecai. Mordecai, the cousin of Esther who's pushing her and shoving her and telling her, don't tell them you're a Jewess and the one who doesn't bow down to him, his hour comes. And we're going to see how God used Mordecai to providentially preserve Israel. Mordecai, who said to Esther, who knows, but for such a time as this, thou art come to the kingdom, his words come right back to him. Mordecai, who knows? But for such a time as this, thou art come to the kingdom. So let's continue our study of the preservation of Israel. Our study last time closed with an incredible turn of events. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the man who plotted the destruction 
of Israel was exposed by the Jewish queen Esther. Remember that? How they meet together at Esther's banquet and uh, Esther says, there's a wicked man who wants to put Israel away. And the king says, who would do such a thing? And not only that, king, she says, this man wants to kill me. And he says, who would do such? And it's wicked Haman who stands there and thinks that he's been called to the banquet so he might be promoted and he's bragging about it. And we said if there was a, a more dismal man in, in human history, we don't know of anyone. I mean, I can't imagine the feeling that went through him. Thou art the man. And so chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 end this way. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. Hang him on it. So they hang Mordecai, or Haman rather, on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Well, that takes care of one problem, right? I hate to sound real calloused about it, but that takes care of one problem. The enemy of the Jews, the man who plotted to destroy thousands upon thousands of Jewish people, finally has died himself. He's been executed. Same gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. But Israel's problem isn't over. I mean, they have got a big problem. Uh, Haman is just a little problem. They've got a bigger problem than this man. They still had a problem with a decree that went out to all the, the empire, which said that the, on a certain day, the enemies of the Jews were given permission to attack and kill them. And apparently they weren't even allowed to defend themselves or gather together or do anything. I mean, they were going to be wiped out. Now, this is a big problem. You say, why? Now that, now that Haman is gone, why is this a problem? Because, as I've said before, a law that was issued by a Persian king was irreversible. It could not be revoked, not even by the king. You say, why would they have such a dumb law as that? Uh, and it really is a dumb law. There have been a lot of, of laws that have been dumb and a lot, of, uh, a lot of legal systems that have not been the brightest and a lot of governments that have not ex been exceptionally smart, but this takes the cake. And you know why they had this? You know why that they had a law like this that, that said you could not revoke a law once it was given? It was an issue of pride. They didn't want to make the king look bad. I mean, if he gives the law and then he takes it back, he looks silly. He looks like he can't make a decision. It looks like he's made a hasty decision and it was wrong. And so there's this, there's this pride issue there that says the king can't make a mistake. And because of the pride of man, everybody else has to suffer. You think that this didn't take, that this took God by surprise? No. God had it all planned out. God knew that in this year, in this time period, there'd be a silly, dumb law like this. And there's no other way around it. It's a dumb law, ridiculous system like this. And God knew it would exist, and so he devised a solution. See, God can work in spite of human government, right? I mean, we, we struggle with our government and what they're doing and this and that. It's no problem for the Lord. The Lord can handle this system. He can handle any system. So what does he do? The first thing he does is he promotes Mordecai. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And Esther says, this is my cousin. He's Jewish. He's the guy you want to promote. He's my cousin. He's the one behind me. 
And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Apparently, Haman was considered a criminal uh, even after he died. And according to the culture of the day, uh, the property of a criminal was confiscated. And this would include his land, his property, uh, his possessions, even his family members. They all now belonged to Mordecai. Actually, they belonged to Esther, and then Esther gave them to Mordecai. But uh, why did he give them to, Mor- to Esther? Probably uh, as compensation for her suffering. I mean, poor Esther has gone through this, and so the king says, this is my gift to you. Now, in addition to giving Esther these gifts, the king also promotes her cousin and guardian Mordecai to the position of prime minister over Persia. The king had already planned to promote, to give him some type of promotion and reward him. So it was certainly, uh, uh, certainly in keeping with what he planned to do to give him this kind of promotion. Remember, he wanted to reward him for saving his life and, and exposing the assassination attempt. So he now promotes him to prime minister. That's his reward. Can't get much of a better reward in Persia. And he gives him his signet ring. It was this ring that they pressed down into wax to seal a law. This was the ring. This was the king's own ring. It would be like the seal of the union. Any law, even a law that could destroy people, it had to bear the signet ring. So Mordecai is now prime minister, and Esther now hands over Haman's property to Mordecai. You know, it's an incredible turn of events. If you've been following this story with us, you realize that God has turned the tables. It's so incredible that if it was not in the Bible, it would be hard to imagine. I mean, these are things that you hope will happen in your lifetime, that justice will prevail. But here you see it demonstrated. It reminds me of the Bible verse that God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that also shall he reap. This signet ring, for instance, let me give you some examples. This signet ring was once given to Haman back in chapter 3, verse 10. And what did Haman do? He used it to authorize uh, the government to destroy the Jews. It was the same ring. But now it's given to Mordecai and it's going to be used to save the Jews. Turn of events. Irony? No, God's providence. Not only that, but once Haman was prime minister over Mordecai and his people... But now Mordecai is prime minister over Haman's family. Not only that, but once Haman had hoped to confiscate the property of the Jews, but now his property was confiscated and given to, of all people, who? Mordecai. I mean, it's incredible. It's just amazing. What an incredible turn of events. And doesn't this tell us that God is absolutely sovereign and that God has a sense of humor? Just amazing. As I said, if it was not in the Bible, I would have a hard time accepting it. But it is in the Bible, and therefore it is historically accurate. But it's more than history. We're not just studying a history lesson. The book of Esther is a demonstration that God can work out anything and overrule any obstacle. Any obstacle. So God has promoted... Mordecai to the position of prime minister. And in that position, he had authority to do something for Israel. He has not had any authority up to this point, but now he's got authority. 
And how is God going to use him? And how is Mordecai going to use that authority? Let's look at verses 3 through 6. Then Esther spoke again to the king and fell at his feet and wept and implored him to avert to avert the evil scheme of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther requests that this decree to kill the Jews be revoked. I mean, apparently she forgot that in Persia, they didn't do things like that. So she says, oh, king, and I mean, this is her husband. How can we let this happen? I mean, I'm going to be killed and my people are going to be killed. Revoke this this horrible decree. This is the appeal of a concerned woman, concerned for the preservation of her people. Some commentators start saying, well, this is the passion for souls. She wasn't concerned about souls in the sense of salvation, spiritual salvation. She's concerned about physical deliverance for her people, much like like any Jewish person would do today for the preservation of the nation of Israel. So the king responds in verses 7 and 8. So King Ahazurah said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther. And him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's uh, signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and seal with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. What is he saying? The king reminds Esther and Mordecai they now had authority and the resources to do something about their plight. Though the king could not revoke the decree, they could write a second decree which would supersede the first decree. He's saying, I'd love to help you, but I really can't. But he said, you have my signet ring. You have the authority to write another decree. I can't take back the first one, but you could write another one that would would override and supersede the first one. Let me tell you, as I thought about it this, this week, there is no way around it. This is a dumb law. It really is. I thought, the more I thought of it, I thought, why would any intelligent person uh, not just, you know, not see that it's a silly law? Just take back the law. But no, they have to write a second decree. And listen, it backfired on them a, a number of times. One time, specifically in Scripture, in Daniel chapter 6. Why don't you turn there? Daniel chapter 6. Uh, Daniel started out in the Babylonian uh, Empire, but after the Babylonian Empire, he was still alive, and there was the new empire, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel uh, has a problem because of this, but it really is a problem of the of the king because of this. The same law. Chapter 6, starting at verse 7. Now, people were jealous. There were people in high government positions who were, who were jealous of Daniel because uh, he was about to be... Uh, promoted, and he was a godly man, and he found favor with the king, and so there was jealousy. 
All the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a law or a, sta- or a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition uh, to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, they're, they're trapping Daniel is what they're doing. They know that Daniel prays three times he faces Jerusalem. Daniel is a godly man, unlike uh, Esther and Mordecai, he is concerned about Jerusalem. He is concerned about prayer. He is concerned about uh, not eating kosher foods. He is concerned about integrity. He is concerned about the God of Israel. And they know this, and this was his reputation, and this was his testimony. Now, they say, aha, we have trapped Daniel. We know that he's going to obey his God. Isn't that a great testimony to have? People would trap you because they knew that you would obey your God, that you would not compromise. And so they come to the king in verse 8, and they say, Now, O king, by the way, this is a different king than Xerxes, but uh, same system just a few years before. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Let's look at verses 12 through 15. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. And and Daniel prayed to God, and they know that he prayed to God. And so now they come to the king and they say this. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? And the king answered and said, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard the statement, what happens? He's deeply distressed. And he set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset he kept exerting himself to rescue him. I mean, he can't think of a way out. Why? Because it's a dumb law. That's why. Then these uh, men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king established may be changed. We can't do anything, you know, kind of nanny nanny boo boo. You pass this law and you've got to go through with it. Well, look what happens. Verse 18. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, which I, I guess was a great sacrifice for a king. And his sleep fled from him. The man couldn't sleep that night. Couldn't sleep because he was worried. Then the king arose with the dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel spoke to the king. I love this. He said, O king, live forever. Live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before them. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Now, I ask you as intelligent people, Wouldn't it have been a lot simpler for the king just to change the law? I mean, the man is worried. He loses sleep. He doesn't get entertained that night. Is that worth it? Could have just changed the law, but no. No, he couldn't because his reputation as a wise leader 
would be in jeopardy. So in Daniel's case, God has to perform a supernatural miracle because they had such a dumb law. But there are no miracles spoken of in the book of Esther. No miracles in the sense of supernatural uh, interventions into the course of, of human uh, affairs, of, of nature. There's no miracles like that. So how does God overrule a silly law that can't be reversed? Silly system, dumb system. Well, he puts it upon Mordecai's heart to issue a second decree. So, once again, God is going to use Mordecai, the same man who apparently had little regard for the opportunity to worship Jehovah in the temple in Jerusalem, and the same Jew whose stubborn refusal to bow before Haman pushed the Persian ruler over the edge in his hatred toward the Jews. But God's willingness to use Mordecai is not a sign of approval on these sinful attitudes. It is rather an example of the fact that God is not limited in the people he can use to accomplish his work. In fact, God has even caused a donkey to talk so that what needed to be said would be said. God's use of Mordecai should cause us to rejoice in the fact that nothing can stand in the way of his plans. We have only a few more broadcasts before this series in Esther is completed. This study has been a very powerful reminder of God's power over the lives of men and the events of history, and it has issued a tremendous challenge to us as followers of Christ. We must learn to rest in God. If you have missed any part of this series, or you would like to go back and hear a previous broadcast another time, we invite you to visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. There you will find a list of all our previously aired programs, free to download and enjoy anytime. Just click on the... Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.